What I want to talk about here, can we bring up the uh, presentation? There we go, thank you. Is the origins of the state and government. Now, Jeff uh, Myron addressed this question that there's a uh, common theory in welfare economics that uh, just as the business firm is trying to maximize profit, the state is maximizing the utility or happiness <coughs> or well-being of the population. Uh, that's so utterly laughable, uh, no political scientist could honestly believe that that is what the state is doing and that somehow states that fail to do that go out of business. A sophisticated um, economists also understand that's not the case and that's why we have the science of public choice. Now most of my presentation will be oriented from a sociological perspective. It's a little bit different from economics but entirely compatible with it and good sociology should be informed by good economic foundations. Quite often in social science departments you'll find a kind of uh, bristling hostility between the sociologists and the anthropologists and the economists, and even personal animosity. And I think that's a shame because each has a great deal to learn from the others. By and large, and I'll go out on a little bit of a limb, uh, I think that most contemporary sociology is of little interest, as it's done typically, partly because of the hostility that many sociologists have as a professional deformation against economics. And as a consequence, I think that you could usefully describe many of the sociology faculties uh, as a gigantic waste of biomass. <laughs> sociology, on the other hand, when done well, has a great deal to contribute. A former student, I remember discussing this with him, he did his, he was doing at the time his uh, degree in sociology at UC Berkeley, and I said, out of curiosity, why sociology? And he said, well, I think sociology should have a great deal to contribute to human knowledge. And the way he used the subjunctive was uh, very interesting. It, it, it should or ought to. And I think when done well, it does. So I want to look at the origins of these institutions of the state. But let me begin with a contemporary framing. There are a lot of people today who believe that the state is responsible for everything. Nothing would happen without the state. And because they, lose, they miss a certain economics insight, they don't focus on the concept of the margin. They assume that the state as an institution bears full responsibility, gets full credit, if you will, for the existence of all benefits of social order. So, for example, we have Professor Cass Sunstein, University of Chicago Law School. He was, until recently, a high official in the Obama administration. Government is implicated in everything people own. If rich people have a great deal of money, it is because the government furnishes the system in which they are entitled to have and keep that money. And he and many others in this vein, you find them also in law faculties, argue that there's nothing wrong in principle with even a 100% tax rate because without the state you wouldn't have anything anyway. So everything is attributable to the state. Ronald Dworkin famously made this argument as well. There's no loss of liberty, there's just no loss if the state takes 100% because in fact everything was produced by the state in the first place. 
That's where we get this concept of tax expenditures. If anyone knows, what is a tax expenditure? It's money they didn't tax, which is considered an expenditure of the state. So the state taxes you at 30% of your income. The 70% that you keep is a tax expenditure. It is a subsidy from the state to you. Why? Because the state is responsible for 100% of your income and has every right to claim 100%. Whatever they don't claim is a gift from the state to you. The state is responsible for all of the value in the world. And this is, might sound like a, a marginal, bizarre view. In fact, it's really central. You find lots of people arguing exactly this point. It's not, in fact, intellectually marginalized. It is at the core of most of the defenses of the omnipotent state today, which is to say at the core of most political discourse. Now, we heard it not only from academics or bureaucrats, such as Professor Sunstein, but also another rather high source. Let me turn this up here. If you've been successful, you, don't, you didn't get there on your own. You, you didn't get there on your own. I, I'm always struck by people who think, well, it must be because I was just so smart. There are a lot of smart people out there. It must be because I worked harder than everybody else. Let me tell you something. There are a whole bunch of hard-working people out there. If you were successful, somebody along the line gave you some help. There was a great teacher somewhere in your life. Somebody helped to create this unbelievable American system that we had that allowed you to thrive. Somebody invested in roads and bridges. If you got a business, that you didn't build that. Somebody else made that happen. The internet didn't get invented on its own. That was Al Gore. <laughs> Make that clear, uh, who was responsible for the internet. Now I have to say that as a matter of economics, this is really bad economics because he's not focusing on the contribution on the margin. You worked a little harder, you put in a few more hours, you were able to save and forego that much more income that accounted for some additional output. But also on a personal level, uh, this happened after my nephew and uh, my niece-in-law, my nephew's wife, who were raising three tiny children, had opened up their brand new business into which they had put 60 and 70 hour weeks, then all of the labor, the construction work, building the bar, it's a wine bar in Colorado. This made them very, very angry. And I think this helped a lot of people to understand what was at stake. The view, you didn't build that. Now, uh, we can focus on this statement, you didn't build that, somebody else made that happen. Now, to be fair, in the context, the president preceded that with somebody invested in roads and bridges. Of course, somebody also paid the taxes to pay for those roads and bridges. That came from some place. Somebody created wealth that was then used to build those roads and bridges that might bring customers to your store. But even the best interpretation of his claim suggests he and his advisors, such as Professor Sunstein, 
don't understand this crucial economic concept of the margin and why the additional incremental addition of input or output is where action happens. That's really what matters. It's that marginal increment. Instead, they think in terms of the one thing that produces all the value. This is why classical economics was a dead end in certain ways. They learned a lot from the classical economists, but they couldn't deal with this question of the margin. That took the marginal revolution of the 1870s. People such as uh, Karl Menger and Leon Valras and um, to introduce a dramatic revolution in economic science. Prior to that, people would ask, what was the source of all value? Was it land or was it labor? You get the labor theory of economics, and the argument is all value is produced somehow <coughs> by labor. And this generates so many paradoxes and problems in trying to understand how the world works. It was finally abandoned, and we moved beyond to the marginal theory of value. It's marginal value that matters. The marginal unit is what determines the value of any particular one in, in a market economy. But somehow that insight was not absorbed by some of the other disciplines. And most notably, we've just heard two examples of it. Without the state, you'd have nothing. Therefore, the state is responsible for everything. But of course, there are lots of things that are responsible for the wealth that we have, including that extra hour that someone put in working, the innovation, the insight. All of these are contributors. And government, indeed, may be a positive contributor. Without it, you might not have security and so on. But it is not the only contributor, and not, therefore, the additional unjustified step entitled to claim and acquire all of the value available in society. So the argument is all surplus is attributable to the state. <clears throat> and consequently, the state is entitled to take all of it. And if you grant that first premise, the second does seem to flow from it. But in fact, that can't be right. Because without a surplus, it would not have been possible to have created a state in the first place. There had to have been. This is as a logical critique. And sociologists of the state have looked at this. They said, you have to have a surplus first to be able to sustain a state apparatus. That is to say, specialized agents of coercion, whether we call them police or soldiers or the king's guard or whoever it happens to be, or just kings and rulers themselves, there has to be sufficient food produced to feed them. So that surplus could not have been produced because of their existence. It had to precede them. So it is logically impossible that the state is responsible for all surplus. States require a pre-existing surplus for them to be able to be established in the first place. And we can ask, what is a state? And here we'll turn to one of the great sociologists of the last century, Max Weber who gave the canonical definition of the state for sociological terms. That human community which successfully lays claim to the monopoly of legitimate physical violence within a certain territory, and this territory being another of the defining characteristics of the state. 
Now, there have been many other kinds of political organizations as such in the past, some of which were not territorial. For instance, roving tribal groups, the Germanic tribes that moved throughout Europe during the period of the migration of peoples, for example, in European history, did not have a fixed territory. But modern states, the state as it is seen all over the world, is defined by territorial borders, the idea of the sovereign state, which we'll talk about in a moment. It's a human community that lays claim to the monopoly of legitimate physical violence. Now, each one of those terms is important. It doesn't mean that they actually have a claim to exercise monopoly over all violence. There are criminals, freelance, non-governmental criminals out there as well, robbers, people who, who redistribute wealth uh, by pointing a gun at you in a back alley and so on. And the state may try to suppress them in various ways for various reasons, but it's never down to zero. There's always some level of violence. But first, rarely do those people claim legitimate power. So a robber, typically, when robbing you, does not say, I have a right to this money, and you are obligated to submit to me. They just say, if you don't, I'll shoot you, or I'll hurt you in some way. They don't claim that you are somehow obligated to it. Imagine if they did, right? And every thief who stopped you said, let me just explain to you. You are obligated to submit to me. That would be a little puzzling. So they don't do that. They don't claim that legitimate use of force. But the state does say our exercise of force is legitimate for various reasons, and there are a multitude of different legitimating theories of different kinds of states. It may be the, a democratic state. It may be a national state saying we're acting on behalf of the folk or the people or the nation. It might have been, for instance, a Marxist claim, which would say we eliminate you because you are historically superfluous. Right? We're going to wipe you out. You are a class enemy. They give some argument for the legitimacy of their action. And moreover, it has to successfully lay claim to that legitimate monopoly. So you might have a case in which you have robber bands that assert, assert they should have that legitimate monopoly, but they don't have it yet. Right? So we see that also in lots of places of the world where various puzzling little groups or sects or political movements try to take over the state. If they succeed in taking over the state, they fit this definition until they do so and can lay claim to this monopoly. They fail to be states. They're merely uh, aspirants to state power. Now, the whole planet has become covered territorially divided by states. Many people assume that somehow the state has always been with us and in its contemporary form, and this is historically false, it's very, very easy to demonstrate that. The modern nation state, which is the dominant form of political organization on the planet, is a relatively recent phenomenon in human history. There have been many other forms of political, military, legal organization of peoples prior to it. But this state has colonized virtually the whole surface of the planet now, claiming exclusive jurisdiction in defined territorial areas, and typically the most common form, and it's even displacing 
the last few holdouts, is the nation state. This emerges out of a particular European ideology, nationalism, that each state should have a nation and each nation should have a state. That in every state there is a governing nation, typically defined by language, although not always. There are a few cases that are multilingual. Uh, sometimes by ethnicity, sometimes by religion, but all these identified with a unique particular nation. And the myth is somehow that the nation creates or gives birth to the state. The reality is actually typically the other way around, that the state, through the organized use of violence, creates the nation by exterminating minorities, by expelling members of other ethnic groups who are not identified with that nation. So the myth, though, is for each state a nation and for every nation a state. It's the dominant form. And most existing states approximate or are moving toward that model in one form or another. Now, we can ask another question, because wealth is tied up in this, or surpluses. Where does wealth come from? Why do people have wealth? And here we can turn to some of the original, very important libertarian sociologists, uh, Charles Dunoyer, uh, Jean-Baptiste Say, and others, in the early 19th century, uh, in France, established a very important magazine, Le Censure Européen, which was widely read throughout Europe. It's one of the most influential publications of the 19th century. It had a very deep and profound impact. If you look at the old issues, you'll see in the back the bookstores it was for sale in all across Europe at a time when educated people were typically multilingual. Today, uh, that's not so much the case. English uh, is the dominant second language rather than French of much of the planet. Educated people will likely speak their own language plus English, or if they're American, just English. I should say also if they're, if they're English or Australian uh, as well. For obvious reasons, the Anglophones have less incentive to learn other languages because the speakers of other languages learn English. <clears throat> but at this time, it was much more common for people to be able to read in the educated groups French, English, German, Italian, Latin, uh, possibly Greek as well. And Comte distinguished, he said, two great parties in the world, that of those who prefer to live from the produce of their labor or of their property and that of those who prefer to live on the labor or property of others. He identified that many people who accumulate wealth do so by confiscating the wealth of others. I should point out that this is, in my opinion, one of the residual reasons why great wealth is hated and resented. And that is, in much of the world today, and in most of human history, if you were rich, it was almost certain you were rich because you stole from other people. If you go to a lot of countries in the world and you see the people with the very fancy cars, there's a good chance they're the rulers of the state or the cronies, the friends and family of the prime minister or the president, the army general, whoever has power. That has been true through most of human history. It's only fairly recently that we associate most people with wealth with honest trade and productive effort. That is a new phase in human history. 
In the past, of course, there were merchants, ancient Mesopotamia and Greece and so on, who were wealthy because they engaged in trade and production. But most of the people who are rich were rich because of their control of the means of predation, of force and violence. And this means that sometimes it's puzzling for people who live in Western Europe or North America that are mainly, I'll say mainly, oriented towards the production of wealth through productive activity or exchange, find it puzzling why wealth is so deeply resented in much of the rest of the world. And the reason is, if you go to many countries, if you're rich, you're almost certainly a member of the ruling elite, and you're a crook and a criminal. And people understand that. So there's a cultural lag. What we need to do is to help people to acquire the institutions that honor and validate the production of wealth, adding value rather than confiscating it from others. So Dunoyer and Say and others identified these two means to wealth. And it was very important for them to distinguish them. Whereas most people just saw rich people and didn't distinguish how they became rich. And for these libertarian sociologists, they said the means by which one acquires wealth are centrally important. Uh, Franz Oppenheimer, a great a German sociologist and classical liberal, defined the state as an organization of the political means. He took this insight from Comte and Dunoyer and others and said there are two fundamentally opposed means whereby man, requiring sustenance, is impelled to obtain the necessary means for desiring his satis satisfying his desires. These are work and robbery, one's own labor and the forcible appropriation of the labor of others. And he defined the state as the organization of the political means, which is to say the organization, systematization of the means by which wealth is confiscated, is acquired forcibly from others. So understanding that, we have to go back to this earlier question. Some surplus is necessary for there to be a parasitic class of people, or there'd be nothing for them to eat. There had to have been a pre-existing surplus. So thinking about that, what economic means must have preceded the political means? One thing we find is you don't find states among hunter-gatherer bands. There's too little surplus for them to generate a state. You don't find them among the lowest level of subsistence agriculturalists. What's required is settled agriculture and typically the interaction between two social groups, historically. Settled agriculturalists, people who grow food, this is about 8,000 years of human history that we know people have been growing food. That's an enormous change in human lifestyle. Although if you read Al Gore's books, it was a catastrophe uh, because uh, we all got fat. Uh, when people figured out that when you plant a seed or the fruit of a plant and come back later, there'll be something there you can eat. This is really a huge innovation in human life that we can overlook because it seems so obvious to us, but it isn't really obvious because for tens of thousands of years, people hadn't figured that out. In various places, we think probably the first systematic form of this was in what we call the Middle East, Mesopotamia, the area between the two rivers, 
that people work that out. You can take these seeds that you could otherwise eat, don't eat them, plant them, water them, take care of them. You can come back, there'll be food for you later on. And agriculture as a means of cultivating food uh, emerges. But there's another way of living, pastoralists, people who figure out that these large lumbering animals can be killed and eaten, or you can drink their milk or even their blood, as is done in some parts of the world. And if you keep other animals from attacking and eating them, you can develop a kind of symbiotic relationship with them. So pastoralists, people on the move, <clears throat> these are two different ways of acquiring food and sustenance. But what's interesting is when people begin to not only become pastoral people moving about, but in particular to acquire horses, they develop an ability to conquer the settled pastoralists. They're mobile, that's the settled agriculturalists probably, the farmers are not. You can't move your crops with you in the way that you can your sheep or your cattle or your horses. So these two groups often come into violent conflict. And there's even a memory of that old conflict in the uh, book of Genesis when you remember the story of Cain and Abel, the two sons. Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. This is a little echo of that ancient clash between these two means of life, pastoralists, people with sheep on the one hand, and settled agriculturalists, people who grow crops on the other. And the great states that begin to emerge are typically empires of nomadic people over cultivators. A nomad doesn't mean, first of all, it doesn't mean they're never angry, but the second thing is, uh, it doesn't mean that they just wander aimlessly about. Typically, nomadic peoples have settled ways that they traverse from one place to another because they're looking for forage ground and uh, grass for their animals. So typically, in the winter, they move down into the lowlands, and then in the spring and summer up into the higher territory. So often these peoples will have very distinct areas that they move back and forth. Most nomadic peoples, because of the existence of states and delineated boundaries, have been systematically suppressed. There are still a few uh, around the planet that persist in these older modes of life. Also, these territories sometimes would be thousands of kilometers separated. So in an area like Kazakhstan or these great regions of Central Asia, you would find Kazakh tribes would travel well over 1,000 kilometers between the two primary territories that they occupied. The development of settled agriculture, this is one of the earliest sites that we have. Uh, it's from Sumeria, contemporary Iraq. It's a uh, baked clay used to cut uh, the grass. And then the first form of conquering peoples, uh, developing the, what was originally kind of an ox cart and becomes a war chariot. This gives them a huge advantage in military conflict. They're mobile, they can move into battle, and it gives them a stable platform from which to launch a spear or an arrow and then get away really fast. And this gives them a tremendous military advantage when they begin to come into contact with these pastoralists. 
and they establish rule over them. This is a Sarmatian warrior. They are believed by some down here to be some of the first to have fought on horseback with a stirrup, which gave them also a tremendous advantage for uh, fighting from horseback. Again, mobile um, uh, warfare. Typically, they would then treat the conquered people as they treated their cattle. And you find many references in ancient texts that the subject populations were required to approach their kings on all fours with a tuft of grass in their mouth to make it clear they're cows. They were treated as cattle by their conquerors. That was the model that they had. From the cows, we get meat and we get milk and blood, which we can consume, as well as hides and bone and other useful implements. And from these people that we have conquered, we get taxes which is essentially the same model. And so they were treated ceremonially and symbolized as cows. Now, most of the great state formations that have since come to populate the planet originate in the Middle East. The Middle East is responsible for a lot of very interesting uh, things, it's cradle of civilizations, if you will. But also, all cats, all domesticated cats, uh, come from the Middle East. They are all descendants of Middle Eastern wildcats, uh, including uh, <clears throat> as well my cats, uh, all of whom are descended from uh, Middle Eastern wildcats. And the reason seems to have been that human beings co-evolved with dogs and cats. We like to think we domesticated dogs and cats. In some sense, they domesticated us. It's absolutely the case with cats. If any people who are owned by cats here, you know this. They domesticated humans. Um, we have seen now some recent evidence of um, very early coexistence of humans and dogs, or possibly domesticated wolves, uh, much earlier than had been thought. And it seems that those humans who were able to live with dogs had an evolutionary advantage over those who couldn't. Because you're more secure and safe, they protect you from scary predators, and they're useful in the hunt as well. And human beings have, in a way, been selected for people who respond well to dogs, and similarly cats. Why cats in the Middle East? This is the first place that large-scale cultivation of grain takes place. When you have grain and you have to store it, you get Mice. Mice are very bad for humans. They eat all of your grain. Cats think mice are delicious. And those adventuresome cats realized that wherever they saw the big hairless apes walking around, there will be mice. And some of them seem to have been adventuresome enough to go and live among the humans. And those humans who are clever enough to respond to the purring and the entreaties and so on, had fewer mice and were more likely to be successful. So as a consequence, that's just one of the many contributions to human culture is my cats, Wally, Tiggy, and Rosie. Uh, 
the emergence of this kind of state formation was put very nicely by an economist, Mansur Olson. He taught at University of Maryland, very deep, thoughtful economist who straddled this distinction between economics and sociology uh, quite effectively. He distinguished roving bandits and stationary bandits. Stationary spelled with an A, not an E. Stationary bandits with an E would be people who robbed you of your letterhead and paper. <laughs> but stationary bandits, the ones who don't move around, if the leader of a roving bandit gang who finds only slim pickings, that's not very much to take, is strong enough to take hold of a given territory and to keep other bandits out, he can monopolize crime in that area. He can become a stationary bandit. Or, to put it sort of bluntly, roving bandits who come in and they rob and loot and then move on and then come back again find the next time they show up, there's less stuff to loot because they killed a bunch of people and burned everything. And also, when people have no, ex no understanding when it's going to happen, they don't invest very much in productive activity. Well, some of them realized, if we settle among the people, we can rob, loot, steal, and rape a little bit all year round, and there'll be more, right? Because we don't have to come in and plunder them and burn everything. So there's an advantage to becoming a stationary bandit, if you're able to do so. A very important book by an anthropologist that came out a few years ago. I really highly recommend this book. James C. Scott from Yale University. Uh, he's identified as, as a kind of leftist, uh, and I think it's partly because of his sociology orientation. He's actually very friendly to libertarian views. Uh, he's written many important books, but this quite interesting book, The Art of Not Being Governed. He looks at groups, uh, places in the world, in particular one area of Southeast Asia, which he calls Zomia, it means upland area, that is not effectively ruled by states. It's a very profoundly interesting book. And he says, you know, the typical view, again, from the naive economist, not the sophisticated public choice economist, not Jeffrey Myron, but the naive ones, is the state maximizes gross domestic product. And he says, this is naive and silly. There's no evidence for that. Instead, they maximize what he calls the state accessible product, which appropriately is named SAP. And for those who are not native speakers of English, it's a little joke, because to be a SAP means someone who's cheated of things. So he's embedded a little pun or a joke in the title there. The ruler maximizes the state accessible product, if necessary, at the expense of the overall wealth of the realm and its subjects. So he looks, for example, at different means of agriculture in different populations. People who live in the upland areas normally are considered backward. This is true in the United States also. Hillbillies. This is not a nice thing to say about someone. Everyone recognizes a very negative hateful term, hillbillies. Who are the hillbillies? Scotch-Irish descendants, typically the males named William, after William of Orange, their champion back in Ireland and Scotland, Calvinist Protestants, and they went and lived in the hills, hence the term hill 
hillbilly. And in American discourse, this is an insult to call someone a hillbilly. It means they're backward, they're primitive, they're endless jokes about hillbillies. Um, uh, I will repeat one, uh, the definition of, of a, um, a virgin among in some hillbilly area is a girl who can run faster than her brothers. Okay, so it's, it's really ugly. Um, view, and they're often considered inbred and backward. The standard view that we've been told for about 4,000 years is that these backward people, usually identified with the hills or with marshes, also swamp people, backward, always with a negative connotation. That's how people used to live before we had kings and governments. And Scott says that's exactly wrong. That is not the way to understand these people. They're contemporary people who live today as refugees from the state. And they have evolved modes of life that make them difficult to govern. And indeed, I wish that our government leaders had read this book before invading Afghanistan because they would have realized there's a reason why no one in the history of humanity has brought all of the hill peoples of Afghanistan under one sovereign ruler, ever. Not Alexander the Great, so not the Persians, not Alexander the Great, not the Mughal Empire, not the British Empire, not the Soviet Union, and not the United States and NATO. Why? Because they're refugees from states who develop modes of life that make them hard to govern. One of them that he looks at is agriculture. States systematically prefer certain kinds of agriculture, cultivation of grains in particular, wheat, other kinds of grains like barley, or rice in the case of East Asia and Southeast Asia. Why is that? Well, the reason is they require a local labor force to harvest them at set times, which means you can tax them. You know when the harvest is going to be, and the king or the duke or the prince will show up and say, give me my share of the harvest. I get 20%, one-fifth, one-third, whatever it happens to be, whatever tax they're able successfully to impose on the people. In contrast, slash-and-burn agriculture is always identified with primitivism. That's the agriculture that's hard to tax. The growth of tubers, such as sweet potatoes and yams, underneath the earth. You harvest it when you want. There doesn't have to be a set time, one or two weeks, when you have to bring in the entire crop that then mobilizes a large labor force. You can pick it whenever you want. That is systematically discouraged by the state, even though it may be nutritious and tasty and have various benefits. Why? It's hard to tax. And so you see systematically states discouraging this and attempting to eliminate what's called swiddening, or this kind of agricultural style, which then becomes associated with upland peoples. Why? Because they want to be able to produce things in such a way that they can't be taxed. 
Now again, we might think, well, this is just foreign places. In Appalachia, in the United States, think of the revenuers. Revenuers means revenue agents, tax collectors. And what is it that local farmers are often trying to do? Evade taxes. That's one of the reasons why they produce moonshine, illegal alcohol. It's an easy way to sell your grain because you can have bushels and bushels and bushels of grain, which you could sell for a certain price, or you could, in effect, condense it into a bottle of whiskey and sell it for a much larger price, and it's more difficult to tax. Right? So the state is systematically changing people's behavior in response to these incentives that have been established. The state is interested in maximizing the agents of the state, the state accessible product, not the gross domestic product of the population. He says the state accessible product had to be easy to identify, monitor, and enumerate, and in short, accessible, as well as being close enough geographically. This is a very rich and interesting book about the functioning of state power and the way human beings have adapted their behavior to the existence of the predatory behavior of the state. People who are escaping taxation and also conscription and slavery would typically run away into these upland areas or into swamps that are very hard to access. And consequently, states, and whether benign means or malignant means, have systematically sought to eliminate these refugees, these, these uh, refuges from their power. So in a benign way, building roads into the highlands is a very important part of extending the authority of the state. And it's fairly benign. It is actually a benefit to, to people to have roads. Then there's also the more malignant forms, such as when Saddam Hussein drained the swamps in southern Iraq. The swamp air, the marsh Arabs, as they were known, lived in the marshes there, and they were very difficult for him to control. And indeed, they rose up in rebellion against him. What was his response? Kill as many as you could, but it turns out they're very crafty and they hide in these vast marshes. He drained the marshes, totally changed the geography of Iraq. It's going to take many, many years for this area to reestablish itself in its old patterns. They took quite valuable water and siphoned it off into canals that went nowhere just for it to evaporate so it could not reach the marshes, because the marshes what were what protected the marsh Arabs from the power of the Ba'athist state. So we can see the way in which the state is trying to maximize the state assess accessible product. Now similarly, you sometimes hear, and I think foolish and shallow people, have argued on the basis of a misunderstanding of the economics of property rights the following claim. Monarchies are inherently more efficient than democracies, and dictatorships are also, for the same reason, more efficient than democracies. Why? Well, because the monarch owns the territory, and everyone knows owners try to maximize the capital value of their asset. Right? We understand in markets that the owner of a property, whether it's a piece of land or a house or a fisheries or a mine, is trying to maximize the capital value of the asset, which is to say the sum of all the future rents that it will generate into the distant, distant future, discounted by the rate of interest. 
Well, therefore, if you're the owner of the state, you will act in the most efficient way. That's profoundly naive and a misapplication of a concept from economics because they realize it doesn't matter to them if you, you, and you do better if the king doesn't do better. They may be able to maximize their wealth at the expense of the wealth of the total society. And we see this systematically throughout history. And certainly if you look at some place like the Soviet Union, the argument has been made also Stalin was a fabulous organizer. He had absolute total power. Therefore, he increased the complete productive power of the Soviet Union. Well, at the expense of millions of people who lost their lives, were dispossessed, and suffered. It's quite clear the whole society was dramatically poor as a consequence of this behavior. Now, if we want to look at the actual formation of the state, we don't have to look into just books of political theorists. We can look to history at real states actually being formed. And one of the most interesting and well-documented is the case of the Norman state, which was established in the year 911. And this man, Hrother, this is a rather dramatic portrayal of him. No one really knows what he looked like, <clears throat> other than that he was Northern European and bilaterally symmetrical. Uh, <clears throat> he was a pirate and uh, disputed whether he was of Danish origin or Norwegian origin. There are several accounts uh, from roughly this time period laying him, that he was a Norwegian noble or a, a Danish noble. A noble, by the way, means a warlord, I think is actually a better term for this, this power that people had. He was a, a warlord of some sort. He was involved in the year 885 in the famous siege of Paris. And the famous case when Siegfried goes out to meet, and he says, who is your king? And all of these Norse or Viking uh, leaders say, we're all kings. So, well, it's a little difficult to negotiate. So he pays off a bunch of them. Hrolfer was not paid off. Finally, he says, look, I'll give you some money if you'll go attack somebody else. He says, okay, fine. So he attacks Burgundy. But then he comes back. This is the old point. Once you've paid someone not to attack you, you're in a bad situation, right? because they're going to be back. The old famous line of Rudyard Kipling, uh, you, once you've paid off the Dane Geld, you'll never get rid of the Dane. Right? Once you're paying ransom to not be looted, it's never going to stop, because they have an incentive to continue doing this. So Rolfer comes back and a siege besieges Paris again in 9-11, but is defeated, not eliminated at a battle. They say, look, we're tired of this constant invasion of these Norsemen and looting. Why don't we just give you the franchise on looting in Normandy, which is named after the Norsemen, or the Northmen. That's how it gets its name. We'll just buy you off, we'll sign a treaty, and instead of being Hrolfer, you can now be Duke Rollo. That sounds a little more elegant. It's a Latinized form of the name. And that's the beginning of the Duchy of Normandy. It's established by pirates. It is a case of roving bandits becoming successful stationary bandits. It's a very interesting case because the Norse established a number of different political systems at about the same time. It's a very rich period in European history. And three, 
uh, well, four in particular. First, the Scandinavian kingdoms, so the kingdom of Norway that's consolidated by Harold the Fairhair. But then also Iceland, the refugees who leave, this warlord establishing his absolute power, and they move to Iceland. And that's rather well documented as well. So we have all the Icelandic sagas, Laxdala saga, I like to tease my Icelandic friends, one of the least romantic versions, because when all these Norwegian men are coming together saying, where shall we go? People say, well, we could go to England. They say, no, 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 too settled, too much trouble. We could go here, we could go there. And someone says, there's this big island, Iceland, and there are many dead whales on the beach. They say, all right, let's go. So that's one account for the settlement of Iceland. And they establish a rather interesting stateless society that lasts until 1264, from 930 until 1264. They say in Iceland there's no king but the law. And by the standards of the time, it's a quite free society. Women have much more status than they do in other societies, which I think is a, is a very good metric of the uh, liberalism of a social order. Uh, it's quite law-governed and relatively peaceful compared to other societies. When you read the sagas, they're all about fighting. But if you read them carefully, it will say, and then 10 years happened, nothing happened during that period. Then they fought again. And that's actually, we should read the gaps as being as significant as the exciting periods. They also establish what later becomes Russia, Kievan Rus. These Norsemen and their longships go down the river systems of what is Russia and Ukraine and establish initially slave trading posts doing business with the Byzantine Empire. Later from this comes the Russian state. Rus is believed to be a uh, either Old Finnish or Slavic word for Swede, but that was the origin of the state there. In both Normandy and what later becomes Russia, they quickly lose their Norse language. They establish patrimonial states along the old Norse model in which power is handed from father to son. But they adopt a local language. So in Russia, they begin to speak a Slavic language. So Russian emerges as a Slavic language, but the rulers were originally Scandinavian, trading in slaves and beeswax and furs and other things that were desired by people in Constantinopolis in the Black Sea area. And in Normandy, in about 80 years, they dropped their Norse language and begin speaking the derivative of Latin, which we call French. They speak Norman French. Within 80 years, Norse has effectively died out. This particular state becomes very powerful. It's a predatory state. They're very good at extracting taxes uh, from other populations. And then, in 1066, with a conflict over the uh, throne of England, the Normans sail over with their soldiers and conquer the English. And this leads to a number of important elements that have changed how we live. One of them is the language we're speaking at the seminar, English. English is a mixture, in effect, of two languages. The Normans conquer the English, but over a long period of time, they conquer, pardon me, the Anglo-Saxons, a new nation, a new group emerges called the English. 
the language that we speak, you can hear, if you listen very carefully, that there's a conquest at the base of the English language. Because the rulers now who live in the big fancy castles are speaking French, Norman French, derived from Latin. And the peasants, the dispossessed, doing all the work out in the field, are speaking Anglo-Saxon. Well, Anglo-Saxon is a very complex language, grammatically quite rich, one could say. It's a very difficult language to learn. So Beowulf is written in Anglo-Saxon. It's unreadable to any contemporary reader of English. It loses its grammatical complexity. So English has a relatively simple grammar. Many of you who know other languages can attest to that, right? in contrast to Italian or German or Greek or something, other languages. In English, I run, you run, we run, they run. It's hard, right? And then, here's the hard part, he, she, and it runs. Right? Now, for many languages, all of those would have different endings and multiple cases. English has really only one case. It's the dative, and it's almost gone. To whom did you give the book? And that's almost dead. It's been replaced by the modern American, who'd you? Who'd you go out with? Right? Who'd you give the book to? Uh, so our poor little dative is just hanging by a thread uh, in English, and it will be gone uh, fairly soon, which I consider quite sad. And of course, the one that drives me crazy is, how are you? I'm good. It's just, I pull my hair out every time I hear that. I hate that because I know you're good. The answer is, I'm well, thank you. <clears throat> but if you listen carefully to English, not only is it grammatically simple, because typically peasants don't have a lot of use for the ablative or the third person imperative, let there be a barn, for example. <laughs> not a common expression. Uh, but it has a huge vocabulary. And I'm told by linguists, I've never counted myself, it has the largest natural vocabulary of any human language. I don't mean made up words. In German, you can make all the words you want as long as you want. Anyone speaks German, you know this. So der Istanbulische Dudelsackfabriksleiter is one word. It means the factory manager of the Istanbul bagpipe factory. So, <laughs> But it's not really a word. You wouldn't find it in the dictionary. I know many others like that. Um, those are not natural words. For natural words, English seems to have the largest vocabulary. Why? Because there's an Anglo-Saxon word and a French word or Latin word for most things, which makes it poetically rather rich. You can pick one or the other. But if you listen carefully, the rich people are in the big house speaking French. The poor people outside, Anglo-Saxon. When food is on your plate, it is almost invariably French. When it's outside making noises in the barnyard, it's Anglo-Saxon. So for example, we'll set aside my vegetarian ethical preferences for purposes of illustration. If I were to invite you over to dinner and I said, do come to dinner, we shall be serving swine. It doesn't sound very attractive. Or say, we'll be having pig. Not, not so nice. Instead, I would say, would you care to come? We'll be having pork. That's French, when it's on your plate. 
Or if I said, would you like another slice of cow? <laughs> you feel that. So it feels really uncomfortable and disgusting. It's beef, which is French. So you can hear this class conflict between the rulers and the ruled at the base of the English language. And it dates to this establishment, the predatory establishment of the Norman state on the English. Now let's look at some of the characteristic features of modern states. One is they monopolize law. They claim to have a mon monopoly over law. And most people come to believe this. The state is the source of law. Replacement of customary law by imposed law. So rather than seeing law as the means by which human conduct is subjected to the governance of rules, which is the way Harvard professor Lon Fuller, classical liberal, defined it, law is imposed in this modern state notion. They claim sovereign power to be above the law. The state creates an underlying nation, and indeed, even in the American context, think about the Pledge of Allegiance, one nation under God right, that was imposed on school children, creation of a national consciousness, uh, also done through compulsory schooling. Uh, the state will now compel children for education that is free and compulsory. The purpose being they will now be infused with this ideology of the nation and systems of, so of social control, weights, measures, the issuance of passports, identity cards, and so on and so forth. Now, this has permeated our contemporary consciousness to such a high degree, many people cannot imagine living without it. So we can take uh, a few examples. I was in Tajikistan a couple of years ago and dealing with local people who are free market advocates with some of my libertarian colleagues from Kyrgyzstan. And we talked about abolition of propiska, which is the internal passport that's a legacy of the Soviet Union. Everyone has to have a propiska. It means you have a residency right, a permit, to live in this city. You can be deported if you don't have the permission to live in Washington or Fairfax or Minneapolis or what have you. It's a system of control over population. And people were shocked. And these are even people who are very open to our ideas. They said, well, how could you live without a propiska? I said, well, you don't have to have one. That's not possible. And also what's called the labor book, compulsory labor book which you had to have documenting where you worked. So just get rid of it. It's evil. Well, how could you, how could you not have a labor book? It, the Soviet Union had so impressed this into their consciousness, they could not imagine living without it. But not just places like that. In this country, I once had the experience of giving a lecture and a group of very smart students and one a young woman asked me a very pointed question that I'd never heard before in my life. She said, do you think the state should issue birth certificates? I never thought about that. I said, well, in the absence of a reason why to do so, which maybe you could produce, but I can't imagine it right now, the answer is no. Traditionally, these are issued by churches and parishes and so on, so no, I don't, I don't see any reason why the state should issue birth certificates. Then she leans forward, and it was like confronting one of my cats. Her ears flattened back. <laughs> she moved into the predatory mode, and she said, 
how would you know who you are? I thought, wow. She could not imagine having a personal identity that was not delivered to her by the state. Even personal identity was somehow a gift from the state. You couldn't have it without, you would, I said, you know, actually, as a matter of fact, I don't actually have a birth certificate. I have a fairly good idea who I am, but I don't have a birth certificate. And I know lots of people don't have birth certificates. And they don't walk around and say, who am I? Any more than any other philosopher does. So let's look then at what sovereignty means as a characteristic of the modern state. We'll wrap up. Uh, Jean Baudin, who's a very important political thinker, who helped to shape our thinking about the modern state. This was considered radical at the time. It is now just taken for granted. Majesty or sovereignty is the most high, absolute, and perpetual power over the citizens and subjects in the commonwealth. It's absolute, unchallengeable. It is the most high. Above it, there is nothing. And it is perpetual. He did understand at his time there was something called customary law. And he wanted to get rid of it. He understood many people relied on customary law. And he said, no good. Custom acquires its force little by little and by the common consent of all or most over many years. Well, law appears suddenly, gets its strength from one person who has the power of commanding all. Well, to me, this recommends maybe customary law would be a better way to think about ordering legal relationships because it grows. The common law is an example of customary law. It grows over time. One decision that's then used as a precedent in another case, and you grow from precedent to precedent. It doesn't change overnight. Things evolve and change. Thomas Hobbes, another great theorist of the modern state, the sovereign is absolute and indivisible. Absolute means there are no limits on its power. In principle, it is completely unchecked in power. And as such, a sovereign state is defined as the source of law, specifically the only source of law. There is no other law other than the sovereign state, and therefore it is above the law. The argument being, he who creates the law cannot be bound by the law. Because if the law is uncomfortable or inconvenient, he'll just change it. So that the state is above the law. These are deeply illiberal, anti-libertarian concepts. Now, lawyers and political scientists distinguish two types of sovereignty. External sovereignty and internal sovereignty. External means the relationship of state to state. That one state does not make an incursion into the territory of another. <coughs> And internal, however, means the state is absolute and supreme. There is no recourse to any other institution. External sovereignty may have some uses in a modern world to diminish conflict between states, which is the most destructive kind of conflict we know. But internal sovereignty is inherently illiberal. And the liberal response was a different theory, the idea of the rule of law that the law is supreme, not the state as such. Or the idea in German of Reichstag, a law governs state. This is not an easy concept to bring out. And my colleague who's here, uh, Dr. Nua El-Harmuzi, translated in a wonderful speech. One of our Indian colleagues spoke in Egypt. He said, the rule of law, 
So the rule of law, four words in English that Gurchran Das was speaking. And when Nua translated into Arabic, I could tell it was a lot more than four words to bring out the concept, what is the rule of law, the supremacy of law rather than power or of one organization or group of people. This state, as we've seen it, is the institutionalization of what is called in sociology spoliation. Economists call it rent-seeking. Spoliation, my view, is a better term related to exploitation. Rent-seeking is a terrible term. It sounds like people collecting the rent. It's not what it means. It means, uh, effectively, the derivation of income and resources through the use of political power. It has technical reasons why it's called rent-seeking. What we see, states have a, compare, a tremendous advantage. They can concentrate the benefits and diffuse the costs. Because they exercise a monopoly over power, everyone is subject to them. The state can impose small costs on large numbers of people. The benefits are aggregated to small numbers of people who will then be able to acquire this. So think about how the regulatory state works today. Some new rule is passed in the Federal Register, 80,000 pages a year. I'm sure everyone here reads, reads it every morning. You can go online, get the Federal Register. It used to be delivered every day, this gigantic stack of papers. And buried in it is some little rule that annihilates your business or that costs you a little bit more. Think about restrictions on tomato imports into the United States, for example. Every time you buy a pizza, that pizza costs another penny or two. That's not very much. Every time you have marinara sauce, it costs you another penny or two. But aggregate all that up, and that's a lot of pennies or a lot of tomatoes. And tomato growers will come to Washington and lobby to restrict foreign imports of tomatoes. And you can go down the list one after another. None of us is going to march on Washington for our foreign tomatoes, right? Who's going to do that? You're, it only costs you a couple of cents every time you have a pizza. But aggregate that, there are lots of tomato lobbyists in Washington, D.C., and wheat lobbyists, and steel lobbyists, and car lobbyists, all the way down the list. In each case, these regulatory changes cost all of us a little bit, but aggregated together, I'll come to a lot. Those will attract the rent seekers. But we, the population who pay so much for this, it's all in tiny increments that are not worth the time to fight. In fact, we don't even know about them. How many people know about restrictions on tomato imports into the US in some deep way? All right, two people. Um, two eccentric people <laughs> know about that. All the rest of you and me, we are rationally ignorant. It's not worth the time to become informed about it. Now, add that by everything you consume that's taxed, regulated, or restricted. And that turns out to be a great deal. So rational ignorance, concept from public choice. Now, this all sounds possibly very, very bleak, being ruled by predatory rulers and so on. But what I'll talk about in my next presentation is that the process of civilization has been about taming this. It's about taming power and subjecting power to law. 
So it's not just a bleak story. I think it's a realistic one. But we can, in fact, subject those with power to legal processes, to tame them, to restrain their arbitrary powers and their predatory impulses. And I'll conclude uh, with one of my favorite sociologists, Alexander Rustov, who fled uh, Germany when Hitler came to power, spent his time in Turkey, and meditated deeply on the origins of power. His great book, um, uh, Power and the Domination, uh, Freedom and Domination, pardon me, is a tremendous work. It, it was, of course, in three gigantic German volumes. His son, who was a professor at Princeton, edited down to merely one gigantic volume, which in German is considered something you just knock off in an afternoon. <laughs> and he recognized, as I mentioned with this young woman, about the birth certificates. She couldn't conceive of having a personal identity that was not certified by the state. Somehow our awareness, our consciousness, is so saturated with this mentality, we can't conceive what it is to be free of these systems of control and regimentation. All of us, without exception, carry this inherited poison. He talks about this inheritance of conquest within us. In the most varied and unexpected places and in the most diverse forms, often defying perception. All of us, collectively and individually, are accessories to this great sin of all time, this real original sin, a hereditary fault that can be excised and erased only with great difficulty and slowly by an insight into pathology, by a will to recover, by the active remorse of all. And I think one of our challenges is to try to think what it means to live as a free and responsible human being and see which of the inherited residues or poisons we can jettison in the process. So we have a little bit of time for question. I thank you for your attention. And if you'd like to pose a question, come up. Start right here. Okay. My name is Gillian Foster, and I'm from Colorado Christian. Thank you for that talk. I had a question back when you mentioned how wealth historically wasn't seen as a sign of having earned it or produced it, and was wondering, since that's relatively recent, how if that's entirely correlated with innovation and technology over the last few centuries that have allowed more wealth than ever to be actually produced and not just transferred or taken from um, the ruled by the ruling classes. Okay, that's a, that's a very clear uh, question. Uh, the question is, what accounts for the tremendous wealth explosion and the enormous existence of the prosperity we have, which is unprecedented in human history, let's say roughly 100,000 years of uh, evidence of, of uh, Homo sapiens, and the kind of wealth we have is, is just an eye blink in comparison to that. Most people lived miserable lives of disease. They were short. They were illiterate, and so on. And now we live a different life. I think the best uh, systematic treatment of this is by Deirdre McCloskey in her book, uh, Bourgeois Dignity. It's a very, very good, very well-written book from University of Chicago Press. came out maybe four years ago. She argues that it was um, both an economic change in the sense of institutions, but institutions were insufficient, namely legally secure property rights. She calls it bourgeois dignity. It was the belief that producing wealth was honorable, that it was something to be um, admired. And that was a huge change in human history. 
we still have the residues of the old mentality. Speculators are evil and merchants and so on. They don't do anything, but they're rich, as opposed to sweating or being born into noble families. So in a word, it's called free market capitalism, but understood not merely institutionally, but also culturally. Understood as a culture that valued and considered a calling, and within the Christian idea that there was a noble calling in life, and that included the creation of wealth. And that that was, she argues, that's what characterizes the modern world and made possible our modern prosperity. Thank you. Yes, sir. Yes, could you comment on property and the concept of property and property rights and how that developed and evolved with the state or without the state? Yeah, so that, actually that, that's a topic for many hours, and I have actually several lectures I can't deliver here on emergence of property rights. Um, initially, property often had a religious characteristic, and you find in ancient texts the association of your ancestors with the land, which gave it a character that you would want to defend it. By the way, we still have this. Hearth and home in English is a hearkening back to that ancient inheritance, uh, the idea that your ancestors are buried in the land. Think about agricultural families. It's hard to move because your great-grandparents are buried on the farmland. It's, it's not so distant from our contemporary experience. But the emergence of property that could be bought and sold, in which you can have markets for property, is relatively recent. And one of the great innovations was by the Roman law and what's called a, 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 a emancipation of land. Because land is sacred, I can't sell it. It would be a sacrilege. So lawyers, God bless them, right? They may have maybe too many, but without lawyers, you can't have a free society. They work out a legal scheme to allow you to buy and sell land, which is a uh, fictional invasion. I'm a bad farmer. You are a good farmer. I'd like to sell my land, go live in the city, and become a glassmaker, which I would be better at. But I can't. It's sacred. So the lawyers say, well, he invaded my land. Then I sue you afterwards for damage for compensation. I say, he just invaded me. You have to pay me back now. I didn't sell it. So legal fictions allowed real estate to develop. And there are a lot of very interesting books on the development of property rights in real estate, which is really one of the foundational grounds, and how these emerged legally. Societies that got it right flourished, and others that had difficulty didn't. And, and languished as a consequence. It's a really rich topic. We have time for one more question. Take it here. Hi, my name is Mike Craig. Um, we, you've described this emergence of the state largely as a matter of criminality. Um, but if we acknowledge that there are kind of, or there is a small handful of things that the state is extremely useful for, is there any other way that the state could have emerged that wasn't uh, as you described it? Yes. There are other forms of political association that were displaced by the contemporary state. There's a very good book by Hendrik Spruit, S-P-R-U-Y-T, called the, the Sovereign State and Its Competitors. I think it's the title. And there were alternative political organizations, such as the Hanseatic League of the German Merchant Cities, city-states throughout Europe not, that were non-territorial, except with a tiny city area, the Holy Roman Empire, and so on. These were not successful when it came to military conflict with the territorially organized sovereign state and then later nation state, which largely displaced them. You find 
little bits and fragments of these previous political formations. The fundamental question we'll talk about later, because our time is out, is there are indeed authentic collective goods, goods that have the characteristics of being non-rivalrous in, in consumption and relatively costly to exclude. But there are lots of means by which people have solved those problems without resorting to predatory states. And so I think that they're solvable. We do have the state right now, and I think the problem we face is to tame it, restrict it, and try to limit it to solving those social coordination problems rather than all the other things it does so badly. And with this, we're over. It's exactly, ooh, it's 12.01. I'm sorry. Uh, we're going to have lunch upstairs, and we'll proceed again at 1.30. Thank you.